It's not too hard to worship and praise the Lord when things are going well, when you've got good health, and you've got good wealth, and you've got lots of friends. It's easy to give praise and thanks to God. But it's quite another story, isn't it, to worship and praise the Lord when sorrow strikes. What we have for you today, a message on this, uh, uh, the gifts that the wise men gave, the gold and the myrrh and the frankincense. And I've got um, some special things for you, but I'm going to do something a little different. I'm not sure I've ever done this. Uh, but I'm going to do it today. I'm going to play you uh, three or four minutes of a little documentary, a YouTube documentary on frankincense and myrrh. And so it's just a a couple minutes long, but it'll give you some background because many of us don't really understand frankincense and myrrh. And yet we read it all the time in our Bible. So, Are you ready with that little uh, YouTube? Okay, volume turned up. All right, let's watch this. Frankincense and myrrh are perhaps best known for their biblical connotations. But this tree sap has been prized across the world for over 6,000 years. These fragrant incense pieces come from the Bursaraceae family of trees and are found across the Horn of Africa and the Arabian Peninsula. But despite recent attempts to protect these trees, they could soon be headed for extinction. So what makes frankincense and myrrh so expensive? There are roughly 550 species of Bursaraceae, a collection of trees often referred to as the incense tree family, recognisable for their flaking aromatic bark and fragrant sap. But true frankincense comes from only a small fraction of those species, Frankincense is a milky white resin derived from Boswellia trees, which are remarkable for their ability to grow in unforgiving conditions. In fact, these trees have been known to grow out of solid rock. Myrrh, on the other hand, is a reddish resin extracted from comifora trees. The process of extracting sap from Boswellia and comifora trees is virtually identical. Incisions or taps are made in the bark of the tree, which create injury. The trees produce a gummy resin, like a scab, as a protection against the injury. The resin then hardens into teardrop pieces. More incisions are made at important intervals to continue the production of resin exudates. መጀመሪያ <laughs> The resin granules collected from the trees must be separated into different grades. First grade A frankincense is clear, white and without impurities. Smaller pieces of the same high quality granules are separated within a sieve and classified as first grade B frankincense. 
the grades gradually deteriorate based on the size and the amount of impurities, such as bark infused into the resin. Low quality frankincense is mainly sold for local market consumption, whereas grades 1, 2, 3 and 4 are exported. That means that at wholesale, this sack of first grade A Ethiopian frankincense is worth about $430. Frankincense and myrrh have been burnt as incense for thousands of years, and both are deeply ingrained in religious ceremonial burnings. In fact, it's estimated that the Roman Catholic Church alone still uses an estimated 50 metric tons of frankincense a year. Frankincense and myrrh were some of the most highly prized commodities in ancient civilizations, and became the driving force behind the creation of the incense trade routes a vast network of major land and sea passageways dating back to 300 BC that linked the Mediterranean to luxury goods from the south. At the height of their use, these routes allowed the transport of approximately 3,000 tons of incense every year, hauled by camels. Today, alongside its medicinal and cosmetic uses, frankincense has found a surge in popularity as an essential oil, which in its purest form can be sold for as much as $6,000 per litre. <clears throat> it's quite a little movie, don't you think? Yeah, how many learned something? How many learned something? All right, well, I'm glad I showed you that little movie. Our dear sister Roman is our missionary to Ethiopia, and so I don't want any of you coming up to her after and asking her if she could please send you some frankincense and myrrh from Ethiopia that uh, 50 metric tons the Catholic Church used, I'm sure <laughs> we'll uh, add an extra metric ton if we keep asking her. So, can, Did you enjoy that, by the way, Roman? That was interesting, yeah. Yeah, so now that's just uh, the frankincense and myrrh. There's still the gold, but I figure you didn't need to see any kind of a, a video on gold. Most of you have some idea about gold and what it is and what it's not. But uh, I want to talk to you about these three amazing gifts. Uh, price has fluctuated over the years, but I think that back in the day when Jesus was born, the price of the gold and the price of the frankincense and the price of the myrrh, which were very expensive, were probably very similar. Today, gold has gone crazy. What is it, $1,700 an ounce or more or something like that? It keeps going up and down. I can't keep track of it but I just wish I'd bought some 20 years ago. Well, the wise men came seeking Jesus and they brought their best gifts to Jesus. Now, here's something interesting. We know the names of the gifts, but we don't know the names of the wise men. Did you know that there are some people today who don't want to give unless they can have their name up in lights? They want their name, you know, maybe bigger than the gift. And that's not biblical. God doesn't like that kind of thing. God tells us in Romans chapter 12 that he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. That means just do a simple gift. 
Don't be looking for some kind of complicated reward or, or anything. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So it's important when we give, we do it in secrecy. And our Father in heaven, which seeth in secret, he will reward us openly. So just a little interesting note there. But uh, their gifts were part of their worship. The three wise men came worshiping Jesus. And the gifts were just an expression of their worship. Did you know that the word worship, the very first time it's ever used in the Bible, is back in Genesis chapter 12, when, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 22, Genesis 22, when God told Abraham to sacrifice his son. And so Abraham looked upon this as an act of worship. And when they finally got to the Mount Moriah, Abraham said to the servants, you fellows stay here with the donkey and the boy and I, we're going to go and worship and we'll come again. Now that's the White's paraphrase. But essentially that's what Abraham said. And the very first mention of worship is found right there in Genesis chapter 22. And it is in connection with giving. Abraham was going to give his son to God. And that was part of worship. Now, you know the story. He didn't have to do that. These three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, they reflect three aspects of the Lord Jesus. The gold represents him being as a king. The frankincense represents his perfect life, which made him the perfect substitute for our sin. And the myrrh speaks of his death on the cross when he paid Sin's awful penalty. He died and he rose again. But there is another application of the gifts. They apply to you and me. There's an application I want us to look at today. And so let's have a word of prayer. And then we're going to get into this. I think you're going to like this. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful gift of your only begotten Son. To die for us on the cross of Calvary. And make a payment that can be applied to our lives. So we don't have to die and go to hell. Our sins can be forgiven us. We can go to heaven. Oh Father. It's my prayer. And I know it's the prayer of every born again man, woman and young person. Connected with this church. That more and more people who are not yet born again. Are not yet saved. Have never received Christ as Savior. That they will do so even before this year is out. And there may be someone here today who has not yet asked Jesus to be his or her personal Savior. Maybe someone is watching online. And these are probably nice people. It's just that they're still dead in sin and trespass. Please open the eyes of their understanding and let them see that Jesus is a gift to be received or rejected. And in Jesus is eternal life. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son hath not life. Father, bless now this message in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's talk about gold, shall we? Gold. Probably every one of us here owns a little bit of gold. Um, often our wedding rings have gold in them. It could be uh, yellow gold, rose gold, white gold, but it's gold nonetheless. Some people have gold fillings in their teeth. 
Some have little uh, bits of jewelry, maybe a ring or maybe a, an earring or something that has gold in it. Now we know that there's different qualities of gold, we know that. And as the gold gets more pure, it's more expensive. More of the actual gold, it's not mixed with other materials or impurities. But what did the wise men do? They came in to see a baby. Uh, now, the baby at this point, remember, was upwards of two years of age. Uh, he wasn't in the manger, in the stable. He had now grown a little bit, and the Bible says that he was in the house. And so still, he was just little. Um, but a gift for a baby or even a little toddler. People don't generally give gold. You know what I'm saying? If you were to get a, a gift, pick out a gift, if there's a baby born or someone has, you know, a, a child one year, maybe even two years of age, and you were going to buy a gift for that child, would you give the child gold? I'm sure it's happened. But most of the time, that's not what we give. What do we usually give babies or toddlers? What do we give them? Food, clothing, toys, things like that. That's generally what we give. Here are the wise men, and one of them brought gold to give to, to this little one. You know, children that age, two years of age, they don't understand money, do they? If you showed them a, 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 I don't know, a nickel and, and a dime, the dime is much smaller than the nickel. And if you held them up and said, which one do you want? The child might say, the big one. They don't understand money. Um, the wise men, one of the wise men brought, brought gold. Now, the Queen of Sheba, if you remember reading about her in the Bible... She came to visit Solomon. And one of the gifts she gave Solomon, King Solomon, was gold, and she gave him a lot of it. A lot of gold. Gold has been associated with kings and royalty. It was a common gift. And the finer the gold, the better. 24 carat is absolute pure gold. Gold is a dense, heavy metal. As far as I know, it's the heaviest of all metals. And it's bright and shiny. That's where the name gold comes from. It means to glitter. It's scarce in comparison to iron. There's way more iron in the earth than there is gold. And so people will pay more for it. I've read where since about 2500 BC, that's 4500 years ago, gold started being used as a form of money. And before that, it was just a very pretty metal. It shone and shined and people liked it. And in heaven, all they do with gold is they pave streets with it. It's just like asphalt up in heaven. No one on earth here would say, oh, I'm rich, I have a ton of asphalt in my backyard. We'd say, oh, good for you. And up in heaven, if someone said, oh, I'm rich, I've got a ton of gold. We'd say, what do you want with all that asphalt? It's a different country, heaven is, and a different economy up in heaven. And so men kill for it down here, but they just pave the streets with it up there. 
Gold was not a gift of common people. It was a gift for wealthy people. And it was given to royalty as well. If you've ever seen pictures of the Queen of England, she wears crowns and jewels and all that. It's all gold, 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 and diamonds and rubies and things like that. Now, because gold was found mainly with kings and royalty, gold speaks of Christ's royalty. He's not just a king. I want you to know the Bible says he's the king of kings. In Revelation chapter 19, you have Jesus pictured coming back to earth and on his thigh and on his vesture is written this name and part of it is king of kings. That's who Jesus is. And so the gold speaks of his, uh, his royalty. But gold applies to us as well. Now down here on earth, remember, uh, we have a different economy than they have in heaven. And so we tend to value gold. You go and buy yourself a gold ring and you'll see how much it costs. And you say, wow, why is it so expensive? And they say to you, oh, expensive. You want to see the expensive one? Well, we keep that under the counter. And then you die of a heart attack. The price that these things sell for. By the way, price of lumber has really gone up too. Have you noticed that, anyone? And price of metal as well, just plain steel. Uh, you go buy metal. It is skyrocketed in price. Crazy, isn't it? Gas has gone up too, come to think of it. It was 40 cents a liter when we moved out here 22 years ago. 40 cents a liter. Oh, for the good old days. But gold is ridiculously expensive. Here on earth, gold has monetary value, and we value it that way. Gold represents for us our treasures on earth. Our treasures on earth. What are our treasures on earth that could be, you know, liquidated into cash? Well, obviously there's gold, uh, silver, uh, diamonds, rubies. Uh, there are other things that equal cash. Certain assets, if you have a car, how much is it worth? You see, there's a value there. If you own a house, how much is your house worth or how much equity do you have in your house? Then you have furniture as well, and on it goes, right? And all these things, if you were to liquidate it, it would all turn into cash. How much cash are you worth? What's your net worth? Now, if you pay off what's left of your mortgage, you pay off what's left owing on your car, whatever cash you have left over, what is your net worth? You see, that's your treasures on earth, isn't it? Now, we don't just value money for money's sake. Sometimes there's a beautiful heirloom piece of furniture handed down to us from our parents, which used to be their parents. And to us, you know, it's worth more than what it's worth on the street. You might get a hundred bucks for it on Craigslist, but it's worth so much more to you. Maybe a ring from uh, your great-grandmother or something. Maybe it's worth a few hundred dollars, but it's worth way more to you. You see, these are part of our treasures. But I'd like to include everything that's involved in our lives. If you have a job, I suppose that's part of your treasure too. If you're parents and you have children, there's some of your wealth right there, isn't it? And all these things are part of your, your treasures on earth. What you and I need to do with our gold, our treasures, is lay it at Jesus' feet. That is the safest place, the best thing you can ever do with your treasures. It doesn't mean you're going to go out and sell the farm and cash everything in and give it all in the offering plate. 
It doesn't mean that. It means that when you drive home today, you're driving home in a car that you gave to the Lord. If you are going into a, a freestanding house uh, or a condo or an apartment or whatever, you're going into a, a little place that you have given over to the Lord. So your treasures on earth represented by gold, just as one of these wise men came and laid at Jesus' feet this gold, you and I need to lay at Jesus' feet all of our earthly wealth, all of our assets. Everything that you have, you only have it because God allowed you to have it. Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh from above. And so take these things and lay them at Jesus' feet. I learned to do this decades ago. And I'll tell you, it was a lot easier to lay at Jesus' feet my earthly wealth, what I had in my wallet, compared to my wife and my children. But yet, the very safest place, the very best place that you can put your husband or wife and your children is at the feet of Jesus. I encourage you to do that. Take everything, everything, everything in your life and lay it at the feet of Jesus. That's an act of worship. But we go on, and we find that there's another gift. And, of course, it's listed here in um, verse, get the right verse here, verse number 11. They came into the house, they saw the young child, Mary his mother, they fell down, worshipped him, and they opened their, their treasures. They presented unto him gifts. Gold, okay, we looked at that. And frankincense. There's the next one. The frankincense. Now, most of you already know this, but when my wife and I visited the Holy Land, we bought these little bottles. And we gave you the opportunity after service, this a couple of weeks ago, to smell what these smell like. We have frankincense, and we have myrrh, and we have spikenard as well. And these things were very, very costly. Um, I was asked if these are expensive, these ones I'm holding, and I said no. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to buy them. And in the world of perfumes, you have um, perfumes that are worth, they sell for thousands of dollars. And then they'll water that down to what's called a cologne. So it's not as powerful as the perfume. The perfume, you put it on, it'll last maybe several days a week even. You put on the cologne, and it's not as strong as the perfume. It may last for two days. And then they water it down still, and of course the price comes down. And at the bottom is what they call toilet water, eau de toilette. I would never have chosen that name for it, but I'm not the one who chose the name. And that is the weakest form of that perfume, and it's the cheapest as well, and it might last you until lunchtime. So this is more eau de toilette, okay? Because I didn't pay that much for it, but it still has the, the sensation. You can still smell it. So if you've never smelled these, I'd be happy to let you sniff them. Uh, no dabbing them, okay? No drinking them, but you're allowed to sniff them in the foyer after service. So you'll get your chance to get a whiff of frankincense or a whiff of myrrh. Or if you've done it already and you want to do it again, hey, if one is good, two is better. So there you go. So frankincense 
is a very costly fragrance. I can't tell you too much more than you've already seen in that video. It's distilled from a tree found in Persia and India and Arabia and the East Indies and Ethiopia. It's a white rosin or gum. It's obtained by putting a cut, an injury, into the tree, cutting through the bark, and it produces this gum. It flows out. The gum hardens. I've read for three months it hardens, and then it's gathered at the end of summer, and it's sold in the form of clumps of hardened rosin. Now, I have a picture I do want to show you. Put that picture up, would you please, guys? So here's a picture of frankincense, and it's kind of multicolored there, so I'm sure that it's a bit of a mixture. I don't imagine that that one is pure, uh, without impurities, but the cost is, uh, is quite, quite expensive, quite expensive. Now, frank, frankincense, by the way, the, the prefix frank, beside the incense, the word frank means high quality, like a pure, frank incense. So you get the idea. This is very expensive incense. It's very pure. Things that tend to be very pure tend to cost more. You notice that? Because it takes time and effort to get the impurities out. So this uh, frankincense was highly fragrant. It was burned. It was used in worship. It was burned as a pleasant offering to God. In Exodus chapter 30, Aaron burned frankincense on the altar every morning when he went in to tend the lamps. In Leviticus chapter 16, Aaron would take a censer full of burning coals off the altar and he would add a handful of finely ground uh, frankincense and he would wave this thing and of course the, the odors would come off. Frankincense points to Christ's pure and godly life. That's what it points to, which of course was a pleasant fragrance to God. For us, the primary lesson from frankincense is that our lives need to worship God in purity and godliness. We're told in the book of Psalms to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And so it's important that we learn this lesson, the frankincense. It's in there. God didn't have to mention. He could have said that these three wise men came and gave gifts to Jesus and not even mention the gifts. But he mentioned them. Specifically, there's an application for us. The gold refers to all of our assets or everything we've been blessed with. The frankincense refers to a pure life, which is a, a sweet-smelling fragrance to God. But remember, in order to get the frankincense, what had to happen to the tree? It had to get a cut, an injury. They even said so on that little um, video. The guy who was called a tapper, that was his job. He was a tapper. And he spoke about making an injury in the tree. Listen to this. It's not too hard to worship and praise the Lord when things are going well, when you've got good health, and you've got good wealth, and you've got lots of friends. It's easy to give praise and thanks to God. But it's quite another story, isn't it? To worship and praise the Lord when sorrow strikes. When there's a knock on the door, you open the door and, boom, you know, in comes sorrow and heartache. And 
we don't know, but maybe this week or, or next week in, into the new year, maybe one of us will be faced with a, a deep sorrow. Maybe someone here or watching online is experiencing a sorrow right now. Life is often made up of sorrows. Isn't that true? And they're often little sorrows. But you know what? If you get a, enough of those little sorrows thrown at you, it kind of feels like a big sorrow. So whether it's a small sorrow or a big sorrow, here's my point. When you worship God out of your wound, that frankincense flows out of your wound, it's far more precious and costly and expensive to God. When you worship God in the midst of sorrow or heartache, it's far, far more meaningful to God than when you're sitting on top of blessings. Now, I, hey, I'm all for blessings. And I'm all for thanking God for blessings. But I'll tell you what. The best frankincense you will ever offer to God is in the valley. In the shadow. The shadow of death. That's where you're going to offer your best frankincense. So that's a good application there, I think, for you and for me. Frankincense could only be made from certain trees. Not every tree in the forest can offer frankincense. Only certain trees. And I'll tell you, only certain people can offer frankincense to God. And that's people who are born again. People who are saved. People who have repented of their sin and received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior from hell their gift of eternal life to get into heaven. Only those people are able to produce frankincense. And so if you're here or watching online and you're saved and you know you're saved, you have within you frankincense that needs to be offered to God. Learn to worship God every day. If you do that, it'll make it so much easier to worship Him in the valley of the shadow of death. The third gift given was a very strange one. And it's myrrh. It's listed here in verse 11. It's the last word of verse 11. Myrrh. And it's a rather a strange gift to give to a child when you think of it. Because um, the myrrh speaks of death. It's not quite the gift we give to a small child or a baby. If your friend invited you to the birthday party of their one-year-old or their two-year-old and you came over and made a, a gift, say, what's this? Well, I've, I've paid for a coffin for when you die, for when your kid dies. I bought the coffin. How would your friend look at you? How would you feel if celebrating the birthday of your, your boy your friend comes over and they bought a coffin. Oh no, not for now. This is when he grow, for when he grows up, for when he's old. Here's the coffin. Isn't it a beauty? You, you wouldn't know how to accept a gift like that, would you? You, you didn't know if you, if you should be offended or what. No one gives coffins as birthday gifts. And here myrrh was given to this 
young infant Jesus. Now myrrh, of course, is an aromatic gum produced by this thorny bush of a tree grows in Arabia and Ethiopia. Again, it's obtained by cutting or injuring the tree. And the tree oozes out this myrrh and it comes out as a pale yellow color at first, but then it hardens and it changes color, mostly to red, but some black as well. We have a picture. Put that up. There's a, a nice handful of myrrh. So you can see the, the dark colors there. Um, frankincense represents sweetness. Myrrh represents bitterness at least to the taste, anyhow. And in fact, it was given, that product was given the name myrrh because of its great bitterness. That's why it was called myrrh. Now, the Hebrew word for myrrh, you've heard before. In Exodus 15, the children of Israel had come out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness. They came to some waters, and the waters, they couldn't drink them because they were bitter. And so in Exodus 15, they called it Mara. Mara, that's similar to myrrh. They called the waters Mara. They can't drink that. They'll die. It's horrible stuff. Remember reading the book of Ruth and Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi. And after she finally came home, she went over, you know, she got out into pagan land and then she came back to Israel. She had her, her daughter-in-law, Ruth, with her. And they welcomed her. Naomi! And the first words out of her mouth was, call me not Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara. What does Mara mean? Bitter, yeah. She said, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. She was mad at God. Have you ever been mad at God? It happens. Sometimes God's children get mad at their Father in heaven. It happens, and Naomi got mad. Now, myrrh was used chiefly in embalming the dead. That's why I say it's a rather strange gift to give to a, a little child. It was used chiefly in embalming the dead because it had the properties of being able to preserve the, the body from putrefaction. It was much used in Egypt in the embalming and also in Judea. Many of the ancients... Uh, for many of them, myrrh was considered to be a favorite perfume. Imagine that. And it was said to keep its fragrance. Myrrh, now listen, myrrh itself was said to be able to keep its fragrance for hundreds of years when stored in an alabaster box. Interesting. Myrrh also had medical qualities. Sometimes it was mingled with wine in order to form a uh, a, a drink that would numb the senses, like a um, heavy-duty Tylenol sort of thing, or um, uh, codeine. You know what I'm talking about? When, when you have pain, you take a pain thing and it takes away the pain. That's what this could do as well. Do you remember when they came to crucify Jesus? They offered him a drink. Remember that? And that drink was designed to numb the pain. He had already been beaten with a cat of nine tails. His body was bloodied and he had been bruised and had the crown of thorns on him. He was in a lot of pain. And they offered him this drink, this bitter cup. It was a bitter thing to drink, but 
it was a painkiller. They did it, I'm sure, to help prolong his life on the cross. They weren't doing it to be, to be nice. They were doing it to give him a longer death on the cross. But Jesus, when he, when he realized what it was, he wouldn't drink it. Say, why didn't Jesus drink it? Well, two reasons. Number one, he wanted to be fully conscious, fully present of mind for what he was doing on the cross. When he died for my sins and your sins, aren't you glad he wasn't drunk? Huh? Aren't you glad he wasn't numbed out of his mind, you know, with all of these painkillers? But the second reason is that if you'll remember when he was in the garden, and he got on his knees, he got on his face, he sweat as it were great drops of blood, and he prayed, Oh, Father, if it be possible, let this cup be taken from me, but nevertheless, thy will be done. That was the cup of bitter sufferings that he was to endure. And he ended up drinking the cup, figuratively speaking. And so he refused the cup at the cross because he had already drunk the cup in the garden. And he went through that awful time of sorrows and suffering, beating him to an inch of his life. Amazing. Um, it's interesting. The word, the Greek word for myrrh, the Greek word is smyrna. How many have ever read Revelation chapter 2? Can I see your hand? If you've read Revelation chapter 2, there was a church of a certain city. What was the name of that city? Smyrna. And it means bitterness. And if you read that letter to that wonderful church, this was a church that was going through suffering. Suffering, not for their own sin. Suffering, not because they were being crazy. Suffering, because they were being Christ-like. Suffering for their, their faith in Jesus. Suffering for their witness. Telling others that Jesus saves. And some people didn't want to hear that. And they suffered a lot. The church at Smyrna. Interesting. Knowing that Jesus suffered far more than us can help give us courage when we have to go through suffering. So myrrh refers to death. The Bible says precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Now I have a strange question for you. Are you ready? We talk about giving your life to Jesus, living for Jesus. You hear that all the time, don't you? Have you given your death to Jesus? You say, that's odd. It sure is, isn't it? Why should we be talking about death in the land of the living? And yet, listen to me. If Jesus does not come back in the clouds to rapture us and take us home to heaven in the next few years, it's quite possible that one or more of us sitting here today will be dead. 50 to 60 million people die every single year. Every single year. We don't know. We may get sick of a disease like COVID and we may die. But by the way, I have some good news for you. I just read this morning a statistic comes out of the United States that 72% of all churches in the United States have never seen one death related to COVID. 
Isn't that encouraging? I think that God has got his hand on his people. Now, sometimes we get sick, and even with COVID, but God is the great healer of diseases. But it's interesting that 72% of churches in the United States have never seen a COVID-related death. I just find that very encouraging. God is still on the throne. Amen? He still knows what he's doing. That's good. But look at the reality of this. Should you or I have to go through the valley of the shadow of death, a valley that perhaps there is no coming out of, should you or I be laying on our deathbed in the next year, two years, five years, or whatever, if we are laying on our deathbed, how will our death glorify God? We talk about living your life to glorify God. But what about your death? Now, to help give you an understanding of what I'm getting at, do you think that when Jesus lived on earth, his life glorified God? Yes or no? Yes, you can say that a little louder, okay? I'm getting hard of hearing. What did you say? Okay, good. That was a yes. Do you think that Jesus' death on the cross glorified God? Yes or no? Yes. So if Jesus' life and death can glorify God, you and me, our life and our death can glorify God. It's not something we think about, is it? But maybe what you ought to be doing is be preparing, preparing just in case God calls upon you to go to heaven through the valley of death. Maybe you ought to give some thought how can my death glorify God? It was just a few weeks ago that we showed you the red box. Do you remember? And we encourage you, get one. Put it up on your wall inside your front door maybe so that neighbors or visitors can see a box that says, to be opened if we all disappear. It's the rapture box. And we're just saying, well, what if that happens soon? We want to make provision for that. And that's a good provision to make. And you ought to make provision for that. And you ought to make provision to live your life for Jesus. But you should also make provision that your death should glorify God. It only makes sense, doesn't it? Myrrh speaks of death. They gave it to Jesus when he was maybe less than two years of age. Here's some myrrh. Wow. And the myrrh spoke of his death. His death, burial, and his resurrection, hallelujah, but his death. And likewise, the myrrh speaks of our death. Stephen was the first martyr the church ever saw. In Acts chapter 7, it says, He kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, Lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That means he died. That's how Stephen glorified God with his death. William Tyndale was probably one of the most or maybe the most brilliant biblical scholar England had ever seen. And yet evil men saw to it he was arrested and falsely tried and put to death. In 1536, they tied him to a stake 
and strangled him and burned his body. And before he died, he cried out so that others heard him a prayer. Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And God answered that prayer just a few years later. Jim Elliott, on January the 8th, 1956, went with a few other missionaries to try and win the Aka Indians to Christ. Instead, he was shot through with arrows and killed him and his missionary friends. And his life today is still glorifying God, inspiring more people to go to the mission field. In fact, the widowed wives of these four or five missionaries took it upon themselves and went back to these same Aka Indians and were able to lead them to Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon on his deathbed as his family was around he glorified God by saying Jesus died for me. George Grenfell a great missionary to the Congo died in 1906 and he said Jesus is mine. And with that he went home to heaven. John Newton as he neared his end he exclaimed, I am still in the land of the dying, but I shall be in the land of the living soon. Their death was a precious gift to God. A young couple, soon to be married, holds their purity as a gift for each other on their wedding day. I'm asking you a strange question. Are you holding your death as a sacred gift to glorify God? How can you glorify God in your death? And that's something you need to figure out. So let's sum things up, conclude things today. Like Jesus, your death should be a precious gift to God. That's why it's called myrrh. But you can't give to God a precious death if you're not living a pure life. If you're living a life that stinks, so will your death be. In order to give to God a precious gift of your death, you must lay at Jesus' feet a life of purity and godliness. And that's the frankincense. Does that make sense? But you can't live a pure and godly life if you're messed up with the love of money and things. You must lay your treasures at Jesus' feet. That's the goal. But I finish with this. You cannot lay your treasures at Jesus' feet if you do not know Him as your Savior. And so please, if in your heart of hearts you know He's not there, maybe you wish He was. Well, He can be. If you will admit to God in prayer that you are the sinner that Jesus died for, and if Jesus hadn't died, you'd be in hell today because of your sin. Sins of the mind, sins of the mouth. If you will admit to God your sinfulness, if you will ask Jesus to forgive your sins and come into your heart to be not just your Savior from your sin, but the Lord of your life, the boss, invite Jesus in to be the King of your life. You do that and He will come in. And that's all I did on April the 6th, 1975.
And he came into my heart and my life. And he changed me. And in my case, he called me to full-time service. And if I had a thousand lives to live, I'd give every single one of them to Jesus Christ. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. Do you see? It really does apply to your life and to mine. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word.